Bienvenue à Getting Curious. I don't know if you say like uh, in French, but whatever. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week I sit down for what I attempt to be a 30-minute conversation, but a lot of times it's not. Let's be real. With a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week, I'm curious about who are you anyway, Rachel Rollins? She is the district attorney of Suffolk County, which includes Boston. But honey, that is not all. Oh, welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited. I'm wow, I really just got lost in your gaze. Um, welcome to the podcast, Rachel Rollins. Yes. Oh man, what are you supposed to call like what's like a district attorney's like first like do I call you like doc? You no, call not me a, Madam District Attorney. You're going to call me Rachel for the next however long we're talking, but people actually refer to you as Madam District Attorney. It's like the best thing. That's the only reason I ran. Did it start <laughs> when after you were like Madam District Attorney-elect? Yes. Yeah, so they did say Madam District Attorney-elect, and now when people meet me, they say Madam District Attorney, which is just hilariously funny. Well, we're not going to bury the lead on this episode, honey. Uh, you are the District Attorney of Suffolk County. Correct. Massachusetts. Yes. Which is the home of like Boston. Yes. And what other big cities are right there? So Chelsea, Winthrop, and Revere, which are um, all sort of abutting or around Boston. But everyone knows what Boston is. I mean, we win everything. We are, you know, we sort of do. Very modest. You know, we have the the Patriots, the Red Sox, the Celtics, uh, the Bruins. Uh, We also have Harvard and MIT, which are technically in Cambridge. But, um, yes, Boston is very well known. Yeah. And thank God for like a gorgeous glass ceiling that did get very much shattered. Was that, that was in 2018. 18. So yeah. you've been on the job for two years now. Or no, one year. One, Jesus, so I, I started, I, I won September 4th, the primary, and then November 6th, the general. And I started January 2nd. So I've only been in my job for less than three months. Yeah, I had like a mini stroke just yeah, then. That's okay. the full the mini, math, yeah, that's okay. The full mini, that's okay. Wow, wow, wow. We're going to forget about the math. Uh, wow. <laughs> so three months on the job. What were you inheriting as, and also you're the first... Like, well, do I, you're the first black woman that was a that absolutely was, that's major. It's major. First black woman in all of Massachusetts. There are 11 district attorneys in Massachusetts. I'm the first woman ever elected in Suffolk County, which, as we said, is Boston, Chelsea, Winthrop, and Revere. And I inherited an office of 300 people, about 150 lawyers, 150 staff. Sadly, in Boston, we have a lot of racial disparities. Um, so, overwhelmingly, in the criminal justice system, um, black and brown people are are over um, represented, and poor people. Uh, but in my office, the numbers of employees are not sort of reflective of the people that we serve. So, I inherited a very bright office, really good lawyers and staff. But we just need to make sure that. They are from Chelsea, Winthrop, and Revere, the other parts of Suffolk County, speak the languages of the people there, and have a lived experience. Who decides who, like, how the lawyers get hired at the, like, yep. was that like the old district attorneys hired yes, them? Yes, yes. So I inherited an, a fully staffed office, and I get to come in and make hiring decisions. So I'm basically a CEO. I'm the, I'm the head of this 300-person um, agency, and I brought in some staff with me. Um, there were a lot of people that self-selected out that, you know, tendered their resignation. And we're looking at the staff now and deciding what the right fit is for people to stay and go. And I think 
you know, my sort of statement with respect to criminal justice reform, and I'm going to apply this to my staff, is we can disagree, but you can still be treated with dignity and respect in the process. If you're not the right person to be heading this unit for me, we can find another job for you. We will have a party, right? You will be honored for all of your service. Um, and it's not a reflection on you and your capabilities. It's just that it's not the right fit for my office. So it's much like any administration. When they get elected, they come in. They have to deal with the people that, like, work, you know, in sure. that administration, figure out, like, who's coming, who's going. That yeah. happens, like, all the time across the board. I think, you know, I watched The 13th on Netflix. I think so many people, oh, you yeah, saw this. Oh, my God. It was... I mean, it's just bone chilling. It's it really, is. it's really, if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. But, I mean, the criminal justice system in this country is, makes a lot of, or makes some people very rich. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think privatized prisons are something I worry about a lot. Yeah. I, I just had a very long talk with my dad on privatized prisons and, and how angry I am at, at the state of so many different things yeah. in our country, and especially because a lot of my family does... Re- um, uh, they identify as Republican. And part of what my dad likes about Trump is mm-hmm. that there are certain business decisions that this country has made since, you know, like at a corporate sure. level that he thinks have, positive, has, have positively benefited him as someone who's been in business for, you know, a long time. And I was like, that is the definition of white privilege mm-hmm. right there. <laughs> because, because you like some of the economic in- incentives yep. that this administration has created for people like you and only people like you. Um, you don't need to uh, be upset about the families that he separated or the the protections that he's, he was. Oh my god! I almost just really spilled some personal beans that oh, I don't oh, need oh. to not yeah, do right we're then. We're not going to do that. Um, but I was, you know, it, it's we. I just had an episode with Bobby Kenny Jr. and he was oh, telling yeah. us about how because um, he works for the Water Waterkeepers Alliance and he was saying how like all these like water protection rules are being like uh, rolled back and like we don't even realize because yeah. all of these things are going on. But honey. Our country's on fire. I need to focus. Yeah. Um, I need to focus. I was like, Dad, that is the definition of white privilege that you can choose to not care about all these crazy things that are going on because you're benefited in some, you know, sure. and not even that major of an economic way. Yeah. It's no, like, I get it. And for the and for the states that don't have privatized prisons, um, what I want people to start thinking about and talking about is if your sheriffs that run your, you know, House of Corrections, for example, here, if they have a really strong union of corrections officers and their labor costs are going up, meaning they're hiring more and more corrections officers, but the prison population is going down. In Massachusetts right now, it's something like for every five prisoners, there's one corrections officer. But in our schools, for every 29 kids, there's one teacher. I want those numbers to switch, right? Like I was fortunate enough to go to public school until third grade and then private school fourth to 12th before I went off to college. We had 10 or 12 kids in our private school to every teacher, we were constantly told how exceptional we were. And by the way, we were not. (laughs) But we were told that every day. And we were reinforced and loved and nurtured. And that's what I believe we deserve in our public school system. And as your chief prosecutor, the best deterrent to crime is a really great education. And... um, and societal involvement that's positive, not just sort of oversight and criminalization of poor people and black and brown people. Instead of, you know, having school resource officers like like police in schools, let's get counselors. Let's get social workers. Let's get psychiatrists and yeah. psychologists. You know what well, I mean? Well, I mean, well, now that we have like, well, we also have like a huge gun violence problem. So like, yes, please have one police officer yeah, there. But right. let's take like, instead of, well, but it's like, it's crazy because like now we actually like, 
I remember when I was in high school, I was scared back then. Yeah. Like, oh, I really? even, okay. oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, I graduated in 2004, but, like, I mean, there was, like, Columbine. We definitely oh, yeah. had metal detectors at my high school mm-hmm. by the time I graduated. Like, um, yes, but I get, but there needs to be protection, but there also needs to be investment in general. I also think that's, like, such a big difference between how Republicans and Democrats think For of sure. things is, like, Democrats want to invest in things so that you, they are more of, like, into preventative medicine. Sure. Which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. Because, like, invest in a little something now and, like, you you avoid the problem altogether or you get, like, a bigger return if you invest up front versus waiting for it to be broken. And then you have this, like, huge issue. Yeah. You know? No, I get it. But how do, like, I think, you know, war on drugs is something that they talk a lot about in the 13th that's, like, such a, a big problem and it was just so failed. And and the way that, like, the Clinton administration especially, like, really criminal, that was, like, how they won over oh, so I many know. Republican voters was by, like, criminalizing, um, like, nonviolent drug yeah. offenses. Sure. Like, because, you know, it's like the war on drugs, honey. That, was, that played really well in the 90s. Absolutely. But talk about family separation. This country, we've been separating families, like, in terms of jail time and prison sentences for, like, nonviolent that's another thing I freaked out on my dad for because I was like, how is Paul Manafort going to be in jail for four years? But there's probably women in this country who are just trying to get by and like selling some dime bags of weed that like won't get to see their kids graduate high school. Of course. Because they sold some dime bags of weed. They're going to do like 20 years, 30 years, like minimum sentences. Oh, I know. And why minimum sentences like don't work? Like how do they tie the hands of like Massachusetts people or like yeah, prosecutors? For sure. I mean, w- some of the hypocrisy I think I talk about and part of the reason why I believe we were successful is let's just talk about marijuana. So, mar- so Massachusetts Massachusetts legalized uh, uh, medicinal marijuana and then recreational use. There are still people with marijuana-related prosecutions and quarries, like criminal records, um, that are precluded from getting jobs now. Marijuana is a billion, with a B, billion-dollar industry in Massachusetts. There's something like less than 1% or 3% of the people that own the distilleries, um, dispensaries, dispensaries, Mm -hmm. sorry, it's alcohol, marijuana, Uh, dispensaries, I love that you're clear-headed. Yeah, you exactly. don't even know what it's called, honey. <laughs> right. You're too busy like, right, making exactly. good decisions. I'm too busy living. Yeah. But um, we were over-prosecuted for marijuana back in the day. And now that it's legalized, we are either precluded from being owners as a result of criminal records, right? Or they are not working affirmatively to make sure the very population that was targeted when it was illegal – gets access to Which is to just the- what AOC was saying. Absolutely. But what about, like, people that have, like, felony charges, like, in states like Alabama, where, like, if you have a felony charge, you can't vote. Uh, totally. Like, for marijuana things, like, would that have to be something that would be, like, federally legislated legislated to, like, expunge, like, you know, pre-existing nonviolent so marijuana? So it's beautiful. No. You're, so this is why I wanted to come on the show. I don't think people realize how powerful your district attorney is. So we have great DAs in Cook County, Chicago, Kim Fox, for example, Marilyn Mosby, who's in Baltimore, um, both of whom are saying, as your state's attorney or your district attorney, we are going to affirmatively expunge people's marijuana convictions. We're not going to make you come and fill out a million forms or file a petition. We have access to all this information. We're going to look back and correct old harms that we have. The other piece that I want you to hear about war on drugs that's fully hypocritical is the opioid crisis right now, which is horrific. Don't get yeah. me wrong. It is a health issue for sure. But when it was black and brown people back in the 80s and 90s and it was crack cocaine and heroin then, nobody cared, right? When I look at Massachusetts and and across the country, because the demographic of who was addicted didn't look like 
you know, a governor's son, son or yeah. nephew or or because it's because uh, now it's oxy exactly. is what people overdose on. But like, but that that's like a prescription drug. It's of not course. like and that, but it's so hypocritical. It's hypocritical. And so wrong. And the point is, is I don't want to dwell there. I'm not going to dwell in the hypocrisy, but I have to say it out loud because part of why we're seeing this tension um, in the in the in the in the world, very candidly, or in the U.S., is communities don't trust law enforcement, right? And I find it fascinating that men of color overwhelmingly and white police officers suffer from the same problem with the media. We only see white police officers shooting, you know, black men or brown men running away from them and hearing about all of these terrible police officers when we know the overwhelming majority of law enforcement officers, men and women, do a great job every day, love the community they work in, and show up to work and are law-abiding citizens. And Men of color are often only shown on TV as either athletes or criminals, right? And so what we have to do is we have to hold our media accountable, but we also have to talk about, you know, the the hypocrisy and then start getting busy with making the the work happen, the real work. So with opioids, it's a health issue, and we're going to make sure it continues to be, but we're going to make sure that people of color that are suffering are also getting beds and not just wealthy kids from other communities that legislators now say, my God, this could be my nephew or my son. We got to change this when they didn't care when it was somebody else. And I think that this is something that commonly happens to marginalized communities because if you look at the HIV AIDS outbreak, the exact same thing happened when it was all 100%. gay people, no matter who they looked like. It was just, it was queer men, it was yep. gay men. And so people didn't really bat an eye. It wasn't until like needle exchanges and you started seeing like women yeah. getting it that like it was like specifically white women. Yeah. Uh, that that was what people started to like really, and and then you know, athletes, but when it was gay men in the 80s, it was like... Nobody cared. You're totally right. And it was like, it was a gay cancer that people almost like... Like you deserve... I mean, there were horrible people that thought that these these individuals deserve that. And like, if we don't talk about that when we're speaking to certain communities... they can sense, you know, I don't want to swear on your show, they can sense BS immediately, yeah. right? So if I don't take hate crimes seriously as your DA or I only consider certain hate crimes hate crimes, look, anyone, we, we are so proud of the fact that we just um, had a press release about uh, a man who um, was harassing a Moroccan woman on our public transportation. Uh, it was the last day of a holy holiday for her. She wore had hijab on. He, you know, berated her, um, physically assaulted her. And we we were fortunate enough to get a guilty verdict. She was so thankful and excited. But the judge didn't give him a large sentence. And I had asked for the, the most serious sentence because I believe hate crimes permeate through communities and terrorize communities, right? So whether it's a Muslim uh, person, whether it's a Jewish person in Massachusetts and Boston, we've had not one but two horrible attacks on our um, on our beautiful Holocaust memorial. Twice we've had in the last couple of years. We are number one in the country, according to the FBI, for hate crimes. Wow. Um, and now this is a situation, though, where the data, I'm proud of the fact that we are actually reporting hate crimes because, you know, I look at Alabama and Mississippi and say, really, you don't have hate crimes? It's right. because they don't even report them. Right. They don't care enough to call something a hate crime. So we have a lot of work to do, but we're going to make sure populations and communities that felt 
overseen or overlooked or silenced, um, know that they have a seat at the table. We're not speaking for you or to you. We want your voice with us, and we're going to advocate for you. And whether we get a guilty verdict or not, you need to know we care enough and our resources need to go to you to protect you. Okay, that's a really good point to take a little teeny tiny break. We're going to be right back with more Getting Curious right after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So, you know, justice, it's supposed to be fair, but mm-hmm. sometimes it feels acutely unfair. I was trying to explain, like, you know, I'm going to use Paul Manafort as an example yes. because I would bust out someone close to me. It's like... Private business? Yeah. Which we're not... Okay, do. let's just say that, like, Paul Manafort also smokes Halloween. Okay. Okay, let's say Paul Manafort is, like, a huge stoner. Yeah. And he's secretly able to get it, you know, like FedExed or whatever. Like, so he's never caught with it. He's never driving with it. So he's able to just, and then meanwhile, he's like passing these laws or, you know, helping. He was, let's say Jeff Sessions mm-hmm. was like a big old stoner. Yeah. Um, and then he's really, you know, working to pass these laws. And like, there's, there is, there is a lot of uh, justice that's not fair. Exactly. And there's like corrupt racist, secretly racist ass mm-hmm. people, or obviously racist if you know where to look, mm-hmm. um, people that are like calling the shots. So like, how do you face that down and deal with it? And also, like, how does that work between a district attorney asking for a sentence mm-hmm. and then the judge being like, because the Manafort judge just said no, that T.S. Ellis that gave yeah. the Stanford guy, like, no, nothing. Oh, my God. The Brock Turner Brock. guy. Yes. I know. Um, it's like, how does that work? And can the DA be like, no? Or can the prosecutor appeal Absolutely. Yeah. So what, I mean, great question. So I think of Elliot Spitzer, right? Remember when he was arresting all these people holier than thou, but meanwhile engaging in, you know, criminal behavior on his own time. Um, It's that type of hypocrisy where we have to hold, I believe I'm held to a higher standard. Very candidly, I'm your DA, right? So if I'm, if I, so Another way I say that is if I'm sending people away to jail, one of the things I've promised to do is once a month I go to a, a one of the uh, facilities, the prisons in Massachusetts, and I visit. And I sit with them for probably about two hours. Um, and I don't go to a close one. I drive an hour away about, and I sit there. And is it a convenient inconvenience? Yeah, of course it is. But I get to leave, right? So I want to make sure I'm sort of holding people accountable um, in that circumstance. I think with respect to the sort of Jeff Sessions piece or or the other part that you were talking about, I, I, I think the hypocrisy is something that I, I focus on. Um, I, it, it, I have a laser focus on that where no matter what anyone is saying to me, I always want to make sure out loud the community hears me say, yes, but. And then we have to move toward a solution. But I want you to ask me the the last part of the question again. So we have good DAs like you that Mm -hmm. are, like, doing the good work to maybe, like, uh, affirmatively uh, expunge records on, like, marijuana things if you're, like, allowed to, if that fits into the law of your district. Yeah. But there's, like, an opposing energy, too. Like, there's, like, other DAs that are, like, really want to enforce, like, you know, bad immigration policy or really want to enforce, like, bad uh, marijuana policy. And they're going to use the law to, like, further marginalize, like, further fuck people up. So how do we deal with that? Like— How do we deal with this? So what I think you have to be is bold, right? So one of the things I just announced two days ago was we – I'm in charge of um, any homicide that happens in Boston, Chelsea, Winthrop, Revere. I have exclusive jurisdiction over that from the 
investigation all the way to the prosecution. That's different than most other places in the country where DAs start with the prosecution and they're responsible. I oversee the investigation as well. One of the things I did was said to the community, um, I'm going to have an external group of people that help me do this because whenever we go to court, I'm holding hands with the police. All of our witnesses in most of the trials that we have, not all, we have civilian witnesses, but our law enforcement. So when a police officer is alleged to have shot somebody and not done it lawfully, like could be looking at criminal charges, how can my office, the same people that walk in every day with them to try cases, are friends with them, know them well, be objective, be unbiased? And so what you can do is be bold. And even though there were a lot of people that were not happy about it, I set up a four-person committee that I'm going to report out to on any officer-involved shooting. They're going to help me with my investigation, and ultimately it's my decision, but I removed it from the office and left it exclusively on my lap. I think you can have bold people like Kim Fox, Marilyn Mosby, Satana DeBerry. These are all last two to three years DAs that are elected that are speaking out and aren't afraid of the backlash that happens. Um, And then we have to be bold. We have to say, Your Honor, we're not going to ask for a first-degree murder charge. This person is 14 years old when they committed this crime. And is it a tragedy that the person they killed is 16? Yes. And that their co-defendant is 16 as well. But these are children that did this. I believe in brain science. I want to give them an opportunity, even if it's 20, 25, 30 years from now, if they've changed their life, that they should have an opportunity at parole or to get out. That doesn't make me popular, but I believe it's the right thing to do. And that's what great leaders and DAs do every day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's, well, I, I understand how that could not be popular. And I think that these are like incredibly, um, you know, difficult and really you see things that are horrifying. Horrifying. I mean, you see insane things and is violent crime going up? Oh, it's, well, so it, fe- it, it, I'm happy to say I don't believe that it is, but in my world, I feel like it is because all I see as the DA sitting in my office, no one ever comes in and says like, there's cake in the lobby. What they say is we need you to watch this video. It's a murder yeah. that happened. Um, we want to charge them with X or we believe there's a valid self-defense um, you know, uh, there's a, they could make a valid self-defense argument. So we don't know whether we're going to charge them at all. Um, one of the other things I want to say is when I make tough decisions, that family that's not happy, the, the family of the 16-year-old who was murdered, and we gave the 14 and 16-year-old a fair sentence, a long one, but a fair, I'm going to meet with that family. And they get to yell at me and scream at me, and they get to tell me I was wrong, and they get to tell me that I'm not honoring their loved one. And I have to sit there and I'm going to listen. And I'm not going to say anything back and I'm not going to justify what I did or try to explain it to them because that's not their job. Um, It is a hard job, right? And we are dealing with people. You got to understand, no one's ever happy when they go to court. If you get a subpoena to be or you get noticed that you have jury duty, people aren't like, yes, jury. It's like, ugh, what can I say to get out? Or you saw the like Super Bowl commercial with all the levels of hell, right, with – um. Is that Justin Bateman, I guess his name is? But anyways. I was in Tokyo for the Super Bowl, so I like really missed all of it. And by the way, the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Oh, I'm sorry. uh, No, 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 it's really, it's really. I just wanted to remind you. But question as a DA, do you feel 
you know, because I mean, Donald Trump talks a lot about like immigration and what yeah. a threat immigration is. I feel like I'm more scared of like Americans with guns yeah. and like domestic terrorism sure. than I am like from for like from afar. And even in like the the boys in the Boston Marathon, they were American. Oh yeah, they I were, mean, their, their last name was like Sarnia, but they were like American yeah, citizens. Yeah, so they had come, they had come to our our state, and they were. Um, they had received benefit. I mean, that's believe me. We we hear this all the time, um, but yeah, I get. I am far more scared of domestic terrorism than I am um, of you know sort of needing borders and things like that. But what I will tell you is where another place we talk about marijuana and opioids, like safe injection sites, or a place where the federal government and the local government we're going to battle back and forth. Immigration is another one where. My former colleague, our U.S. attorney, who, of course, is appointed by the attorney general, who was appointed by the president. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Slow that down. Wait, what? So every – so my – our U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, we only have one U.S. attorney in Massachusetts. And that's above a district attorney, like a state. So the, yeah. state, so so the state has the, one attorney. So the state – our the, the way that it works is every state has an attorney general. Yes. Only one. Okay. However, which is not elected. That's a that is by elected. The go- oh no, no. Attor- okay. attorney general in Massachusetts. It's a constitutional officer, which I don't even. I'm not even sure what that means, but I know that they are, and there. That is an elected position, attorney general of Massachusetts. But the president would appoint his, right? It wasn't the Jeff president Sessions. appoint Jeff Sessions? That's on the federal level. On the state level, you have one attorney general. So Kamala Harris was. Oh, for and she was elected for yep. sure, for sure, for and sure. And then she became a U.S. senator. Ours is Maura Healy, exceptional lawyer, great woman, wonderful. There's one attorney general. In Massachusetts, there's only one U.S. attorney because we're a small state. But New York, for example, has multiple U.S. Oh, attorneys. Oh, there's like the, south, the southwest yes. district. Yes, and, east, eastern, yeah. right. Okay, so um, – and that's the federal – like the highest federal prosecutor uh, in, the, in the state. I am the district attorney. I am sort of local government. I'm, I'm, but I have jurisdiction over most of the sort of blue-collar crimes. So homicides in Massachusetts, exclusive jurisdiction to me. Our attorney general doesn't handle them. The U.S. attorney might if it's a sort of – we just had one actually, a, a, an interstate kidnapping resulting in death where the federal government took that. The marathon bombing, they took that and requested the death penalty. So there are layers of government. We often work together, but it's incredibly complicated the way that sort of we all sift through. I will say in Massachusetts, we get along well. Um, The U.S. attorney, Andy Lelling, we worked together when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. And my rule is we're not going to agree on everything, but you're going to hear from me first about what we disagree on before you turn on the news and see me do it. So I believe in safe injection sites, for example, and because I feel like we have a crisis with opioids and, and substance use. And if we keep doing things the same and don't try different things, we're just going to, we're going to be stagnant. Right? And safe injection sites, uh, not only do they prevent overdoses, but they also prevent the transmission of all sorts of diseases. All sorts of diseases, right? And so, and to the data show, up to now, no one's ever died in a safe injection site. We have 2,000 people a year that are dying it, of overdoses in Massachusetts. It also, I think, decreases community uh, recidivism into, like, continued usage. Because Absolutely. when you get people into safe injection sites, you can get them access to treatment, Count, to so, care. Right, exactly. It reduces needle, uh, di, di, you know, di, um, we have so many And we schools. saw what happened when Mike Pence closed the safe injection sites in Indiana, and then oh, yeah. it resulted in, like, the biggest HIV-AIDS outbreak in, uh, in like, absolutely. since, like, 19, like, right. the, the 80s. Horrible. Right, horrible. And again, that was another instance in, like, 
it wasn't until it was like heterosexual people Absolutely. getting it that it I became know. like a news totally you know right. a news cycle. Totally right. And so and so we have I mean so we have some areas where safe um, opioids, marijuana, um, immigration is huge. Where me and the U.S. Attorney are going to battle because he's made it clear that his mission is Trump's mission. So the U.S. Attorney because he a, got elected though. The U.S. Attorney is appointed. Yes. In, okay. But the attorney general in the state is elected and the DA is elected. So I like to say Andy Lelling was appointed by the president. So one person said he was great and okay. And he had to be uh, confirmed, but 185,000 people elected me. Right. And they want change, right? They look at a criminal justice system and see that if you are poor, first and foremost poor, or brown or black, it doesn't work for you. It just doesn't work the same for you. And they want change. And they want radical change, right? They want us to think outside of the box about how we're going to look at some of these problems. And Andy and I are going to have a couple battles, I'm sure, coming down the pike. Because with immigration, we're fighting really hard to make sure people feel safe and aren't afraid to come to court because they're going to be snatched by ICE. Okay. Okay. I, okay. So layers of government. Mm-hmm. So you have like your U.S. attorney. Yep. And each state has like one or three or four yes. or like New York and California probably have the most, but each usually have like one or two. Yes. And that's appointed federally. Yes. Then you have an attorney general that's elected. Yes. And then you have like your district attorney, which is elected. Yes. So you would have like local law enforcement needing to interact with federal law enforcement in cases of like extreme stuff, interstate sort of stuff. So a question I have is like if your district attorney is kind of like not great, like I think of where I'm from and like there, I mean – I smoked weed in high school. I my friends did. I swear to God, the police in my hometown, like it was sport for them. And 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 my hometown and the county next to my hometown had the highest meth usage per person in the country. Wow. Little to no enforcement. I mean, there was like, you know, houses would explode in the 90s and like, but they were definitely doing speed traps 24-7. Mm-hmm. They were definitely, you know, like just cruising around mm-hmm. like the one project area in my hometown looking for people with literally weed. Mm-hmm. And there was other much bigger, worse crime yeah. to, to go after. So like there's a there's like a distrust in, in, in those sort of communities. Is it only the voters that can hold them accountable? Yeah. So I think with your DA, what we found, the ACLU did a really great survey in Massachusetts. And what we're talking about is I know our DAs are elected in Massachusetts. There might be some, you know, jurisdictions around the country that I'm not aware of where the well, certainly, if I left my post right now, the governor gets to appoint my replacement to the end of my term, then there's an election. So there might be some appointed things. But yeah, I think, you know, we have to be aware of who our elected officials are and what their powers are. And one of the things I'm coming up against is I was really fortunate that the ACLU educated people about the power of the DA. A lot of people think the judge is the most powerful person. A lot of people think, you know, or the defense attorney might be, but mostly judges they look at. I'm the one as the DA, when the police arrest you, if they bring you to court and I say we're not going to charge that, you don't ever get a record. You might have been fingerprinted, but you never go before a judge. I am the stopgap measure in almost anything. We can logjam any system because 
if the police keep arresting and we don't prosecute, the police are going to ultimately, I hope, say, you know, why are we arresting people for this if they're never getting prosecuted? It's a waste of our time. Let's focus our attention elsewhere. There are certain things where if I dispose of a case prior to arraignment, which is your like sort of initial appearance, the judge doesn't even get to hear that, right? So if I say, you know, and this is kind of what I ran on, there are 15 crimes that are overwhelmingly crimes of poverty, mental illness, and addiction. Which are? Which are, I'm glad that you asked. So, for example, trespassing shoplifting, disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, receiving stolen property, minor driving offenses, breaking and entering into a vacant property for the purpose of seeking shelter. So it's cold as all hell in Boston in the winter. If you're homeless or addicted and you break into an abandoned building so you don't freeze to death on the street, I don't believe we should charge you with breaking and entering. I believe – and as long as there's no property damage and you were just in there – we should find out why did you do this and can we help you get housing, right? Yeah. And so there are so many – we are the, the last catch basin for so many systemic failures in many people's lives. I just want to pause for a minute and see can we help you. With these 15 crimes, drug possession, minor in possession of alcohol, threats ex- excluding domestic violence, wanton and malicious destruction of property, standing alone resisting arrest um, – Those are some of the charges where I said, in the first instance, we aren't going to prosecute. We're going to just hopefully divert them and get them the services that they need, right? If you're homeless or mentally ill, let's get you to either mental health court or let's— Oh, there's a mental health court? We have a mental health court in in the Boston Municipal Court. It's excellent. I just sat in last week. Um, What's beautiful when we start talking about this is some of the great things Boston is doing or Philadelphia or Chicago. Now that we're more national, I can— I forgot I was supposed to take a break like seven minutes ago. We'll be right back with Marketing Cures after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. Oh, my God. So we were just saying there's a mental health court. Oh, my yeah, God. Yes, How interesting. And then you were saying you just sat in. Yeah, it was really I beautiful. sat in. It was wonderful. But what's awesome is now that these jobs, even though I'm just in Boston, it's more national. I can say, oh, my God, I love. It's a blueprint. It's a blueprint, right? Like Jay-Z, the blueprint, right? So for me, it's like I want to see what Philadelphia is doing. I want to see what um, – you know, parts of North Carolina are doing, or my new colleague in Maine, what is she doing? And we now, there's about 20 or 30 of us that are progressive DAs. We all have each other's phone number. And I can text Sarah up in Vermont and say, Sarah, send me your opioid policy. What are you guys doing that's different here? Now, it might be easier for her because it's like, I'm joking, but like 11 people in Vermont that are rolling yeah. around every six. But still, there's good acres. ideas happening. Great like, ideas. Yeah. It's a question. Yeah. So I was thinking, like, you know, for where I'm from, like, I, like, in, I, th- I think that this is right. I don't think this is a wives' tale, but I'm pretty sure this is right. Like, there was this email scandal where I'm from with the police because, like, they had this thing that, like, leaked and it was called, like, Operation Ruin Your Holidays. And, like, it, like, it was, like, about setting speed traps around, okay. like, Christmas and New Year's to, like, you know, just roadblocks setting up, like, but not even for DUI so much as, like, just speed traps. Yeah. Like, to, cause it's like, a, it makes money. Like, yeah. it's like an income maker. So I think part of why, you know, marijuana enforcement has been the way it is, is like, even if it's not a private prison, like even 
isn't it in the interest of the police to make like isn't there money to be made from certain states that arrest certain people oh of course I mean because when they fill beds in, yeah. and even if it's a government run prison like in say Alabama for marijuana or yeah. something or Mississippi for whatever or Texas for whatever the fuck doesn't it make them money to to fill their beds and then absolutely it, yeah, and what's – I mean, so perfect example, speed traps that are on the main road heading to a prison, right? So who are the families that go out to visit a prison, right? Um, and additionally, fines and fees. Every – so the over – not all of them, but let's say 60, 70 percent of the people that appear in district court or divisions of the Boston Municipal Court, let's say they qualify for um, free legal assistance. So they're indigent, Right. If they can't afford a lawyer, why is it that once they are arraigned, the first thing that happens is fines and fees? Our whole criminal justice system is funded on the back of poor people, right? Instead of And so if you can't afford a lawyer, why do I think you can afford $350 in fees? Right. right. And then we get to hold you in, or incarcerate you because well, you, can't you can't pay. And well, then you, you can't, can't even pay. make the money. Right. And then look at all the collateral consequences or the domino effect of that, Right. If I have – if I'm the primary caretaker of my loved one and I have to sit in jail for the night, if I don't pick my child up from school, a 51A is going to be filed. That's what it's called in Massachusetts. So DCF is now involved in my life, Department of Children and Families. I didn't pick them up. Or if I don't have a job like yours where you can say like, hey, I'm taking the day off and I choose to do that. If I have to punch in at Wendy's or McDonald's or you know somewhere – at 9.15 the next morning or 9 o'clock the next morning and I don't, they don't want to hear that I was arrested. Right. I'm fired, right? Um, so there are so many things that can happen as a result of our power to take away your liberty. And I know there are going to be people that say like, well, then they shouldn't have engaged in that behavior. But I choose not to penalize people for bad choices, right? Right. Let's at least find out why it happened because the overwhelming majority of people, if we hear the trauma they've experienced in their life or whatever circumstance they're going through, if we show some compassion, I'd rather show some compassion and be proved wrong later on than in every circumstance arrest people and have tons of people that have great qualities and just found themselves in a bad situation sitting behind bars. And oh, by the way, $55,000 $55,000 a year to house people in certain of our jails and then all the way up to almost 80000 or 100000 per person? per person a year in Massachusetts. So it's it's not even fiscally responsible. And, so, and that's not even privatized prisons. That's Mm-mm. like that, – it, it's – so it makes sense for – it makes sense that police would want to arrest people that puts butts in beds of prisons. Absolutely. And it also keeps their job, right? If if all of a sudden crime is down and they don't have to arrest anyone, then why do we need thousands of so police So to officers? me, mm-hmm. when I see, you know, the good stories of police officers, when I meet people like you, it's like um, that to me is like, you know, you're policing, you're using you're using your power to keep communities safe yep. for safety and like in public health sake. Sure. It's not about making money to like get some, you know, deal like Mm-mm. for construction on a bigger prison and a more whatever, which that is a system that is at work underneath a very thin layer, like in, in all over this country. We sure. wouldn't even know. Yeah. So like, has there been anything that you've witnessed in your time, like either running for it or like seeing other, like you are having those other progressive people's numbers. Like, is there a blueprint that you could share with us as we're rounding third base on yeah. this time to, that, you know, obviously 2020 is coming up. Like yeah. we need, I, John Oliver did a great piece on like how important district attorneys are. Yes. Um, I saw that. It, it was, was hilarious. So great. So good. So like definitely take a look into that, but it's like, 
our power is is really major. And I think it's like I think a lot of the places that know they know like not that you should become complacent in in the knowingness of it, but like you know they elected you like the people of Boston. Like I feel like coastally, a lot of people get it. I'm worried about the people that are in like the middle. Oh, yes, yeah, and like the Texas, the Alabama, the Nebraska, the Montana, the Kentucky, the people that like are marginalized already Absolutely. and are in the minority, and there is a majority that is out to keep them marginalized. Sure. So how do we like? Is there any cute blueprints for like changing hearts and minds? Like, have you seen anything like? Yeah, I mean, I think what we have to do, um, one point I'll make, and then we'll get to Tucker Carlson, which I think is helpful. One other way that we also sort of target poor people is when you're in prison, do you know how much it costs to get a call from a loved one in jail? It's exorbitant, yeah. right? And they have a monopoly because you can only speak to them. and you. So we target the poor all the time. We target people of color. We target our marginalized communities. All right, now I'm done with that point. So to move on, though, I think we have to – Reach across the aisle. So I won September 4th, and the first show I appeared on was Tucker Carlson. And people said, like, why would you do that? And honestly, I don't want to talk to people that think I'm amazing. Like, yes, does it feel good for my ego? Of course. But you're already a fan. Who I need to talk to is the other side. They might not become a fan, but if I can remain calm, if I can make data-driven and evidence-based points and respect them while they're talking and listen and then make my point, we've taken a step closer to each other. So I think the blueprint is going to be we have to stop calling their positions crazy. We have to stop marginalizing them, even if we don't agree with them. And even if you want to say, are you so fucking oppre- kidding? So, our, so the people that have like oppressed us and have really like the, like the literal Mike Pence's of the world. I know. I understand that. What I have to do is I have to make sure what we're doing in Boston – is not just good work. I need data to support what I'm doing. So then when I have a report that comes out or I'm about to issue something in the next couple of days, all of my policies, it's not just a mandate saying from now on we're not going to do this, this, this. There are graphs and charts and data supporting what we're doing so that when they say, no, it doesn't work, you shouldn't, you have to criminalize everything. I can say actually in Boston, if you look at the 34,000 cases we did last year and the 32,000 we did this year, crime's going down and safety is the same. And what do they say back to me about that? Well, that can't be true. I'm the DA. I have all the data. Come in and look at it. Kim Fox did this in Chicago. She released all this data. The Vera Institute came in and synthesized it. That's what we have to start doing. We have to not just say what we know is right, but we need evidence and data behind it. And then we need people that are strong enough to stand up. I've been sued by the National Police Association. They're not, I mean, I'd love to say, judge me by my enemies. The more scared the other side gets, the more I know we're doing the right thing. Mm. Um, And we need bold people. Yeah, definitely need bold people. And so really it's like, stay calm when interacting with people that like think very, very differently than you. Absolutely. And it's, of course, I'm a normal person. There are times where you want to just, you know, pick up your, like throw something across. You can't do that. Is there ever a meeting between like all the DAs in the country? So I have not been to one of those. Uh, There is a National District Attorneys Association. Massachusetts, the 11 of us meet the Mass District Attorneys Association once a month. I am going to start going to the National DA's Association meetings, but the progressive DA's, there's, as I said, there are 20 or 30 of us. We try to meet every a couple times a year. I've already been to one or two meetings with them. Um, 
But yeah, so we try to get together and we are not a group of people that agrees with everything um, that we all propose. And even in Massachusetts, um, there are some of my peers that are have very different beliefs with respect to some of the things I'm proposing. But I have exclusive jurisdiction over Suffolk County and this is the way we're going to do it here. What do you think are some criminal justice reform um, things that have worked in Massachusetts that you want to see going, uh, these 15 things you want to enforce differently that I think are great. Is there any other things that you think are interesting ways that we can like ask of our local candidates, wherever you're listening to this, getting curious from in America that would be good to advocate for? Yeah. I mean, they have to start talking about no, you know, really seriously considering whether we need mandatory minimums anymore. Why do we have judges? Judges are put on the bench so they can use their discretion. Minimum mandatory sentencing takes away their discretion because what Whatever I charge you with, if it has a mandatory minimum, it takes away the ability of the judge at the end to say, well, let me look at these mitigating factors. Should it really be three years or should it be five? And it seems like they're only mandatory for like nonviolent or like like, like drug, like things that affect brown and black people because like the Brock Turners and the Paul Manafort's, their judges get to use discretion. Of course, always, right? And they have the best counsel that makes sure that the charges are, you know, uh, they break down a plea or they break down the charges. So- Number one, I would say um, we need to talk about the charging decisions that DAs make. We need to talk about fines and fees. We need to talk about bail. We need to talk about mandatory minimums. Um, And then I think in addition to looking at DAs, we need people to start looking at who their sheriffs are because – I make the decision as to whether or not you're going to be charged with the crime. I then prosecute you and I recommend a sentence. The judge says yes or no, and then you're sent away. And in Massachusetts, it's called the House of Corrections, which is up to about two and a half years, or Department of Corrections, two and a half years all the way to life. The word corrections is in there, right? We're expecting you to be corrected. We're sending you to a place where you're supposed to get better. And what we know is that that's not happening, right? right? We have tons of people with mental health issues, substance use disorder, trauma. Um, We have people that might not be violent offenders that are placed in a population with violent offenders. They come out more violent, more mentally ill, less employable, and then we wonder why we have a 67% recidivism rate. So we need to figure out who are our sheriffs, who are our DAs, and ask tough questions because I have a four-year term. Once I get in there, I'm not I'm not a target again until 22. 22, right? So not to say, you know, too bad, but like once somebody's in there and gets that job, they don't get to leave unless they're removed, right, for a crime, which let's I will that will never happen with me. Or they choose to leave and then the governor gets to appoint a replacement and then they get the kiss of incumbency and they always win. Right. You know? So just all I'll say to people is pay attention, right? It is such a distracting time right now with everything going on in the federal level, but where and believe me, federal like electeds are so important. No, but locally is really local, so important. We've talked about it in this podcast before. State legislatures and your locally elected officials are so important. So because, important, and that's really like where it's going to like affect your life. And Absolutely. I think that when you start closest to you, you can affect more systemic change. When you start closest to you, hundred um, percent. That's so interesting. And also, I just rounding up on this, I went woefully over with you because I can't help it. I just think you're so interesting. And but you know, first. Uh, woman, first black woman, um, really first black person and first woman? First black woman. And what's interesting with me is there was a black man, wonderful man that was appointed by the governor and then one as an incumbent. What I'm so excited about is 
There were five of us in the Democratic primary. There was one gentleman who the DA supported and and all of the police supported, and we were fortunate enough to beat him. And so it was a complete underdog story. And I want people to hear, I'm 48 years old right now. When I ran, I was 47. I had just survived breast cancer. I don't want anyone listening to this podcast to think, you know, I'm not right for this. Shut up and get to it. Stop complaining and do it immediately. You get one life. Are you a lawyer? I am. A, you, have you, a lawyer. Lawyer. You're you have to be a lawyer. You have to so be a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for 20 years in order to be DA. Um, I had been a lawyer for 20 years, but I had never thought of running for office before. And what I want people to hear is your voice matters. I don't, and, and at least try. Even if you're not successful, if you change the conversation in the election term, that's a success, right? Obviously, I hope you win if you run. But what I love is the the fact that I did something. Instead of complaining on the sidelines, I stepped up and I did something and I was successful. Yes, that's great. But it was the journey that was the most important. And now I'm able to affect very significant change on communities that have felt like they weren't listened to for decades. Um, and it is such an honor and a privilege. Um, well, it's such an honor and privilege for me to get to interview you. And I also just, I know that Boston specifically has had so much just hard stuff yeah. in the last few years. And for that, I want to, I should have said this at the beginning, but I want to say, I'm sorry for Boston for that and for the surrounding areas. And it's been so hard and it really has been, I'm not from Boston, but it has been, I mean, I get the chill saying it. It's like, you guys are very strong and, yeah. you know, deflate gate aside, <laughs> not to throw shade yeah. at this last moment. But, yeah. um, I think that the people of Boston are such a strong people. And we I think are. that everything that happened, um, all the tragedies that you guys have faced and been so, um, really grace, gracious at it and elected you in the meantime to keep, um, creating like positive reform, Absolutely. even in the face of things that can be like scary. And I of think that's course. a really hard thing to do. And so I, I, Take my hat off to you for that. Um, And thank you so much for your time. I adore you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Rachel Rollins. You'll find links to Rachel's work and socials in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, Henny. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Henny, but we love that Spotify too, whatever floats your boat. Write a little gorgeous review in Apple Podcasts. Introduce a friend. Show them how to subscribe. Um, Honestly, I love it when you guys are putting uh, Getting Curious up on your Insta stories. Love that live for it keep on doing it um and you know we just love that so oh ooh, and if you have fan art honey we love that too send it to our cute little p.o box address on earwolf.com love you queens bye don't you ever just want to make like a matchmaker and set up your friends i know i do that's why i'm so excited about ship the new gorgeous dating app that lets you set your friends up here's how it works If you're single, sign up and invite your friends to join your crew. If you're a not single, you just sign up and invite a single friend that you want to find matches for. Cute. Then you start looking for matches for yourself or for your friend. The best part is there's a group chat so you and your friends can look at people's profiles together, strategize on what your opening line is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, wow, that's kind of cute and a lot. Because half the fun of dating is talking about it. But don't worry, only the date can talk to their matches. Dating is way more fun when you do it with friends. Download Ship for free at getshipped.com slash JVN and start today.